0: Well, let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we know that we're distracted. We're not necessarily focused the way we need to be on the child that came at Christmas. And so I pray that you would help us to focus in on your word this morning and to see the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the glory that you mean us to see in, in, through our text today. Help me, Lord, I'm, I'm weak, I need your grace as I deliver this word. Uh, would you be honored through it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have a lot of appreciation for the nation of Canada. Uh, my wife's a Canadian, I've got family and friends up there. And, uh, you know, there's really a lot of similarities between Canada and the U.S. Uh, Our countries are right next to each other. We have a similar culture, a common European heritage. But I've come to realize over the years that there are some key differences between Canadians and Americans, and and perhaps the biggest one is how we view royalty. See, here in America, we, uh, we don't like royalty very much. We, we told King George to take a hike, and, and we meant it too, didn't we? But Canada is a, a commonwealth country, which means that they are still part of the British Empire. So the British monarch, and right now that's Queen Elizabeth, is technically still in charge of Canada. And the Queen or King of Britain appoints somebody called the Governor General who represents the interests of the crown in Canada. And even though it's just a rubber stamp today, uh, the governor general has a lot of say over what the Canadian government does. So, you know, they can call and dissolve parliament. They give what's called royal assent to acts of legislation. Very powerful person. Now, for some reason that I can't quite understand, whenever I ask my Canadian friends about this, they don't seem to mind the fact that their whole country is still technically under British rule. That just doesn't really bother them. Uh, In fact, they're actually quite proud to be part of the British Empire. You know, they care about what's going on with Princess Kate and Prince Harry and the Duke of Erlington or whatever all that stuff is that they talk about over there in Britain. They care about that stuff. And, you know, they name their counties after royalty. So I always notice when I'm driving in Canada, you're in like King County or Duke County or Prince County. See, belonging to the British kingdom is part of what makes Canada, Canada. Now, the reason I bring this up this morning is because Christmas is about a king. It's about King Jesus. And our text this morning demonstrates that even as a baby, King Jesus gets a mixed response. Some will want to worship him others will respond by trying to destroy him and friends regardless of how you feel about royalty when it comes to governance how you feel about king jesus matters a great deal so i'm wondering are you happy about king jesus today are you glad about his kingdom is the fact that he's king making any real life difference for you this morning See, I think God wants to use his word this morning to compel us to love King Jesus. I think he wants to use this text to move us to worship him. That's the direction that our passage is going to take us today. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in Matthew 2. But before we get there, we'll spend a few minutes looking at how the Old Testament anticipates Jesus as king so that when we get to Matthew we can make good sense of what's going on. So if you could open your bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at Genesis 3:14 and 15 together. Genesis 3 Pick it up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is God cursing the serpent, and we know that that's Satan after he persuaded Eve to disobey God's command not to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And one of the results of that is that there's going to be enmity or hostility between the serpent's seed, or the serpent's offspring, and the woman's seed. But in Genesis 3.15, we see a promise. The serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed. That means he's going to hurt her seed. But in the end, the woman's seed will triumph. He'll crush the serpent's head. And the whole Old Testament traces the enmity between the serpent and the woman. Satan is constantly trying to cut off the woman's seed and God is continuously protecting his promise. You know, so for example, when we look at the flood story in Genesis, the tension in that passage, it's not just how is God going to save humanity from the flood? It's also how is God going to fulfill this promise to the woman's seed and as the old testament unfolds we get more and more information about who this woman's seed is going to be so turn over stay in genesis but turn over to chapter 49 at the end of the book of genesis genesis 49 in genesis we see that this seed goes through abraham and then to abraham's son isaac isaac's son jacob but jacob had 12 sons Uh, And when Jacob blesses his sons at the end of his life, it becomes clear that Judah's line will carry the seed of the woman. So look at Genesis 49 and follow along starting in verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker, Than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now, we're not going to dive into all the details here, but I want you to notice the kingly kind of supremacy that God promises Judah here in Genesis 49. In verse 8, he's going to be exalted above his brothers, he'll grasp the neck of his enemies. That's a picture of Judah dominating. In verse 9, he's depicted as a lion, it's the kingliest of all. Animals. In verse 10, he's <laughs> grasping a king's scepter, and the nations pay tribute to him. He's not just going to rule over Israel, his reign's going to be worldwide. And this picture of Judah dipping his garments in wine in verse 11, well, that's also a kingly image. You know, if you dip your clothes in wine, that would make them purple. That's the color of kings. It's clear that Judah is going to be the tribe of royalty. And so the conquering seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head will come from Judah. And the preeminence of Judah is actually reinforced in the book of Numbers as well. Turn over to Numbers 23. I'm guessing as you were driving the church this morning, you thought to yourself, I hope we turn to Numbers in our sermon today. (laughs) Numbers 23, uh, we'll start in verse 23. Just the setting, so you're aware here, Israel at this point is wandering through the wilderness after God brought them out of Egypt. And they've just defeated Og, the king of Bashan, and Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And the king of Moab, his name's Balak, he's scared that Israel's gonna do the same to him. So he hires a pagan prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. But Balaam ends up listening to God instead and he pronounces four oracles of blessing not curses upon Israel. And listen to what he says in verse 23 of Numbers 23. He says, For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people. As a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? A lion rising up, devouring its prey. That sounds just like God's promise to raise up a king from Judah in Genesis 49, doesn't it? See, God is using the lips of this pagan prophet to reaffirm his intention to bless Judah. And jump down to verse 5 of chapter 24 in Numbers, just a couple of verses later. Listen to what... Balaam says there like palm groves, or I'm sorry, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Then get this in verse 9. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed those who curse you. Again, don't miss the reference to Judah from Genesis 49, that part about the line, that's almost an exact quote of what Jacob says to Judah there. And look at verse 17 in Numbers 24. This is going to be key for our Matthew 2 passage. He says, I see him, not, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Boy, that sounds a lot like Genesis 3.15. And break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. And do you see how significant this promise of a king is in the Old Testament? And we already read from Second Samuel earlier, so we're not going to do that again. But just to recap, God promised that he would establish an eternal kingdom through one of King David's sons. So we know that there's a king coming who's the seed of the woman. Not only that, but from the tribe of Judah. Not only that, but from the house of David. And the promise to make David's descendant king forever, well, that's the key messianic promise. In the old testament even after israel was exult, was exiled they continued to hope in a coming king from the line of david see the old testament anticipates the coming of god's king who will crush satan's head and we could look at passage after passage after passage to affirm this and in matthew we see that that promised king has finally arrived That's why Matthew starts with Christ's genealogy. You know, that's not just a list of names. One of the main points that Matthew is making there is that Jesus is the promised king from David's line. It's also why the angel, when he addresses Joseph and tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, he calls him Joseph, son of David. See, he says that because he's highlighting the kingly heritage of Christ. And when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 concerning Jesus, that's the verse that says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that promise in Isaiah was spoken directly to the house of David. See, Matthew is going through great lengths to make sure that we recognize that Jesus, the promised king, has arrived on the scene. And that brings us to our text. Let's turn to Matthew 2. And we're going to read the first 12 verses together. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So when we look at this passage, the first thing we see in verse 1 and 2 is true worshipers seeking out the king. Now, Matthew wants us to know that his account is accurate, so he starts by giving us some historical details about Christ's birth. He tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's about six miles south of Jerusalem. And he tells us that the birth took place when Herod was king. We'll say more about Herod in a moment. But almost immediately, this text confronts us with all sorts of questions. Now, for starters, who exactly are these wise men who come to see Jesus. Well, we can't be certain, but it seems most likely that they came from Persia. Uh, Matthew says they came from the east, which certainly makes Persia a contender. And we know that the Persian kings had advisors who specialized in wisdom and ancient writings and astrology, things like that. So it's quite plausible that given that there was a large Jewish population in Persia, that the Persians were familiar with God's Old Testament promise to Israel, including the promise of a messianic king. But again, we just don't know for certain that these guys were Persian. We also don't know for certain how many wise men there were. There had to be at least two of them, because the language used to describe them is in the plural, Uh, but there could have been three. There could have been a lot more than three. We just don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. It is likely, though, that they had a big entourage of people with them. I mean, these were impressive guys. So the Hollywood clips that you've seen where there's like three dudes on camels, heavy robes, crossing the desert in the middle of a sandstorm, now, that, that probably didn't happen. They probably would have had a lot of attendance with them, uh, which is likely part of why they made such a stir when they show up in Jerusalem. You know, aside from the wise men, other questions have to do with the star that Matthew mentions in verse 2, which is clearly, by the way, a fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, that a star would arise out of Jacob. You know, some scholars want to deny that it was a star. They say, well, was it a comet? Was it a cluster of planets? Was it an angel that appeared as a star? You know, I think it was a real star because when you read it in the Greek, you know, it doesn't say, angel or comet or planet. The word that Matthew uses is star. So I think it's best to see it as a legitimate star, but it's clearly not a normal star. It's a supernatural star because normally stars migrate across the sky, but this star was positioned in such a way that the wise men could follow it to Jesus. And it seems that only the wise men could see the star because Herod asks them in verse seven, when it first appeared. And he wouldn't have had to do that if the star was visible to everyone in Jerusalem. It also seems that the wise men perhaps lose track of the star for a time because they need to ask those in Jerusalem where the king of the Jews was. And then the star reappears in verse 9 so they can complete their journey to Bethlehem. So again, lots of, lots of questions about the star, things that we can't be totally certain about. By the way, just as an aside, it's not unscientific to believe that God used a supernatural star to guide the wise men to Jesus. You know, we Christians, we accept that God has established natural scientific laws that regulate how the universe operates. But we believe, unlike the world does, that God is above science. I mean, he created the laws of science, so he gets to suspend those laws as he sees fit. Science doesn't govern God. God governs science. So there's really no contradiction to believing that science is a legitimate thing and also believing that supernatural things like this star can happen. That's not a contradictory point of view. But those... Questions aside, let's not miss the main point of what Matthew is getting at in these first two verses. Clearly, these wise men recognize that the long-awaited king has arrived in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And what's interesting is that they're aware that Jesus is king of the Jews. That's what they call him in verse 2. But they come to worship him just the same, even though they themselves are clearly not Jews. And think about what what great lengths they went to meet with Jesus. Again, we don't know exactly where they came from, but if they came from Persia, you know, maybe they came from Susa, that area is the capital of Persia. I did a little Google Maps search, Susa to Jerusalem, and today it would be an 18 hour drive. And there's a lot we don't know about the wise men. We do know that they didn't drive to Jerusalem. That's pretty clear. Uh, So whether they came from Susa or somewhere else, they came from a long way away. I mean, it took them at least weeks to get to where Jesus was in all likelihood. And why would somebody do that for a king that's the king of the Jews when they're not Jews? I think the wise men understand something about Jesus that many Jews in Jesus' day didn't understand. They understand that Jesus' kingdom is going to be a worldwide kingdom. Yes, he was the king of the Jews, but he was not the king for the Jews only. He was the king for all peoples that had come into the world. And the wise men understand that the universal scope of Christ's kingdom obligates them to worship him. You know, it would be a mistake to view the wise men seeking out Jesus merely as a a nice thing to do. And I think sometimes because of the sentimental feelings we have about Christmas, we can kind of read that into the text a little bit and think that the wise men were just giving Jesus a baby shower or something like that. And I'm not denying it was nice of them to come and give him gifts, but I'm saying that there's a lot more to it than that. See, worshiping Jesus wasn't just a nice thing to do. It was the necessary thing for the wise men to do. Worship is the only appropriate response to the arrival of God's king. It would have been wrong for the wise men not to worship Jesus. See what I'm saying? And by the way, we we skipped past this when I read the Old Testament before, but the scriptures are clear that the coming Davidic king would be worshiped by foreigners. Now, so for example, Psalm 72 says, "'May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands "'render him tribute.'" May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Isaiah 49 says, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Isaiah 60 says, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So the fact that these wise men show up to worship Jesus is yet another indication that the scriptures are being fulfilled by Christ's arrival. But it's not all lollipops and rainbows in Jerusalem when the wise men arrive. In verse 3 to 8, we see a sinister plot is hatched to eliminate King Jesus. Now, Herod was the king of Jerusalem at this time. He was the governor of the province of Judea for about 40 years. And his reign was marked by massive building projects. So he's the one who built the temple that the Romans would destroy in 70 AD. And Herod, well, he needed some serious counseling because especially at the end of his life, he was extremely paranoid about potential plots to kick him out of power and he actually had his own wife executed uh, and several of his sons executed as well because he thought they were conspiring against him Uh, actually caesar augustus the emperor of the roman empire he himself said that he would rather be herod's pig than herod's son (laughs) because the pig was more likely to survive is what he was saying so given herod's paranoia it's it's not surprising that Matthew tells us in verse three, that he's troubled when the wise men come searching for this king of the Jews. He sees Jesus as a threat to his power. What's more surprising though, is that it says in verse three, that all Jerusalem is troubled along with Herod. I mean, just think about that. The Jewish people who have the most reason to be happy that the Davidic king has arrived, turn out to be troubled by his arrival. Whereas wise men from the east who seemingly have nothing to do with the king of the Jews, they're the ones eager to welcome him. Well, Herod immediately swings into action to address the threat of a rival king taking his power. And the first thing he does is gather intel on his opponent. So he assembles the chief priests and the scribes and he asks them, where the Christ was to be born. And they cite Micah 5, 2-4, to tell Herod that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, this prophecy basically says that Bethlehem, though on the surface an insignificant town, will be the birthplace of a ruler who will shepherd Israel. By the way, Bethlehem is King David's hometown in the Old Testament, And the Jews rightly interpreted this text as pointing ahead to the coming Messiah. But the dullness of the chief priests and scribes is striking here because on the one hand, they have really good theology. They certainly know a lot more than the wise men do about the messianic promises in the Old Testament. You know, the wise men show up and they're like, hey, anyone know where the king of the Jews is? Well, well, the chief priests and the scribes, they wouldn't have had to ask that question because They knew the answer already. They knew that Micah 5 had promised that the Messiah would be coming in Bethlehem. But even though they have superior Bible knowledge, so to speak, they're totally disingenuous because they don't have any plans to join the wise men in worshiping Jesus. Well, now that Herod has some intel on where the Christ is to be born, he launches phase two of his plot. He summons the wise men secretly, and he ascertains from them when the star had first appeared to determine what age Jesus is. And then he sends the wise men on their way, and he says, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, we know that Herod is totally dishonest here. His real plan isn't to worship Christ. He wants to eliminate him. And that's exactly what Herod will try to do later in Matthew 2. But I want to hit pause for one second because on the surface, these verses are merely about Herod's scheme to preserve his power as king. But remember what we mentioned earlier. Satan has been hostile to the seed of the woman ever since Genesis 3.15 promised that her seed would crush his head. And what we see here in Matthew 2, it's not ultimately about Herod. It's, It's really a continuation of that hostility. Satan, through King Herod, is trying to eliminate Jesus Christ. So Herod's plot has a spiritual dimension to it. Right from birth, Jesus is being opposed by Satan. Well, in verse 9 to 11, the the focus shifts back to the wise men as they continue their quest to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Not suspecting anything sinister from their chat with King Herod, they continue the last few miles of their journey to Bethlehem. And they're in a great mood as they anticipate finally meeting Christ. And Matthew emphasizes that point in verse 10. He says, they rejoiced with exceedingly Great joy when they saw the star going ahead of them and resting over the place where the child was. By the way, this scene is not set at Jesus' birthplace in a stable. So the Hollywood depiction of, you know, the shepherds showing up and then the wise men showing up at the manger, that's not historically accurate. This incident takes place at least several months or perhaps even a year or two after Jesus' birth, when he lived with his parents in a house in Bethlehem. And in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, these stately wise men fall down before baby Jesus and they worship him. And And just think about that for a second. Can you imagine it? I mean, grown men, dignified men from a distant land, just rejoicing and falling down before a little child who in all likelihood couldn't even talk yet. I mean, who knows? Maybe Jesus was sleeping when this was happening. Or maybe he was crying. Maybe he was pooping for all we know. But the wise men are worshiping him. Now what kind of king warrants that kind of a response? Only a king who is God incarnate. That's the kind of king that deserves worship. What did Jesus tell Satan in Matthew 4 when Satan said that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just fall down and worship him? Well, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. And quoting from Deuteronomy 6, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, only God deserves worship. Only God deserves the kind of adoration and honor and reverence that the wise men give to baby Jesus. And based on their response when they meet Jesus, I think the wise men knew that he was God in the flesh. They recognize that God himself has come down from heaven as the promised king. <clears throat> now many people have theorized about the significance of the gifts that the wise men give to Jesus. Maybe you've heard some of those theories. You know, some say the gold, that's the kingly gift, and it typifies Christ's divinity. Uh, Frankincense, that's the priestly gift, since the priest would burn frankincense on altars. So maybe there's a connection that points to Christ's identity as our high priest. Myrrh was used to anoint prophets and in burial. So some see this gift as foreshadowing Christ's prophetic ministry and his death on the cross. You know, my own take, you don't have to agree with me on this, but I think while it's certainly possible that there's some symbolic significance to the gifts, uh, I think interpreting them allegorically uh, reads too much into the text. And I think if Matthew, for example, wanted us to read the word incense or frankincense and think about Christ as our high priest, he would have given us some more clues in the text to know that that's what he was getting at. I, I don't think he's speaking in code here. So we should be careful not to overinterpret the symbolism of the gifts. But I think we can say two things for certain. I think first we can say that the gifts emphasize the legitimacy of Christ's kingship. As the Davidic king, Jesus receives expensive gifts that are fitting for a king. I think second, we can say that the gifts emphasize the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the wise men's worship. You now they didn't just pop by with a box of diapers and a Starbucks gift card for Mary. No, they gave the very best gifts they can give because of the worthiness that they assign to the receiver of those gifts. The gifts themselves are part of their worship of Jesus. Well, if we're reading Matthew 2 with that Genesis 3.15 promise in mind that the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent, it's no surprise that Herod's plot to destroy Jesus is foiled. As he did throughout the entire Old Testament, God preserves his seed and the angel warns the wise men not to return to Herod. And so they depart to their homeland by a different route. And Herod must move to plan B, to get rid of Jesus but that's a different story for a different sermon like I said in the beginning the way that you respond to King Jesus matters this morning you see King Jesus deserves your worship so I want to ask you again, how are you feeling about King Jesus today? Are you excited about him? Is the fact that he's king making any real life difference for you? you no, know, a couple of weeks ago I was out on a walk with my two-year-old son. It's actually more of a run, because he likes to run down the sidewalk. And so we're we're jogging on the sidewalk, having a great time. And I let him get a little too far ahead of me, further than I should have. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, he just ran onto the street. And sure enough, there's a car coming. And thankfully, it wasn't right on top of him, but it was close enough that a driver, not being very alert, might have not seen him in time. And of course, as a parent, the nanosecond you detect your kid is in danger, your body just reacts. And so... You know, my, my normally cat-like reflexes went into cheetah mode and I just bolted and I just snatched him out of arms away. And Mr. Judah became reacquainted with Mr. Stroller for the rest of that walk. But you know, my son, being only two, was completely unfazed by that situation because he had no clue that he was in any danger. And as a result, he had no appreciation for the fact that I rescued him from that dangerous situation. It just kind of went over his head. You know, you and I are an awful lot like two-year-olds when it comes to our understanding of our salvation, aren't we? We don't really grasp the danger that our souls were in prior to Christ. We don't really comprehend how close we actually were to facing God's judgment. You know, the famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he described unbelievers as a spider just dangling over the fires of hell. But we have a hard time resonating with that idea most of the time. We don't easily think of our condition outside of Christ as being all that perilous. And as a result, our gratitude, and worship of Jesus Christ, it's a bit muted. It's a bit flat, a bit weak, a bit mechanical. See, brothers and sisters, if we are to be excited about King Jesus and worship him the way the wise men do in our text, God must open our two-year-old-like eyes to the magnificence of our salvation. I mean, do you realize, brother, that... Before Christ arrived as king, Satan ruled you as a tyrant. He had you imprisoned in sin with no escape, and you were all too happy to be his prisoner. You had no regard for God. You had no remorse over your sinful condition. Do you realize, sister, that apart from Christ arriving as king, Salvation wasn't possible for you. No effort on your part could have changed your stony heart and made you fit to stand in God's presence. No pleading or sobbing or begging on your part could erase your sin or save you from certain judgment. But just like Herod's plan to eliminate Jesus was foiled by God, Satan's plan to stop King Jesus from saving you failed. See, you were out on the street. Unaware that God's judgment was barreling full speed towards you. But King Jesus leapt into action. He snatched you out of the pathway of God's judgment and he took the hit on your behalf. On the cross, God ran over Jesus with his wrath. Jesus willingly stood on the pavement in your place, even though it was your sin that put you in harm's way. He could do that because he was the God-man the only human ever to live a sinless life and therefore the only human capable of becoming a substitute for you. And God accepted his sacrifice and resurrected him from the dead to reign as your eternal, unconquerable, undethronable king. Satan's head was crushed by Jesus Christ once for all. Now perhaps some of you are still living under Satan's tyranny this morning, as evidenced by the fact that you're living in sin, I'm here to tell you that King Jesus is willing to add you to his kingdom today. If you call out to him for salvation and repent of your sin, he'll leap into action. He'll save you from the path of destruction that you're stuck on. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to be excited about King Jesus this morning. He doesn't want you to be dull to your salvation like the Jews were. He wants to use this text to stimulate you to reflect on your salvation and therefore to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about it, because of King Jesus, you're no longer under Satan's dominion. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So you're no longer enslaved to sin. Satan no longer rules you. You don't have to obey those sinful passions that once dominated you. And you're no longer condemned to hell. Jesus rescued you from all that. And because of King Jesus, you have a bright future, dear believer. Sure, you have a lot of hardships and and struggles here and now, but the kingdom that you've inherited is eternal. It won't end. One day, King Jesus is going to return for you and give you a resurrected, sinless body. And one day, which will be here sooner than we know, you'll be with King Jesus forever in paradise. And because of King Jesus, brothers and sisters, your labor for his kingdom is worth it. You're not wasting your time when you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ or open your mouth to share the gospel with someone. You're not wasting your money when you give generously to this local church. You're a worker for King Jesus, building his kingdom until he returns. See, all that we have, dear believer, is made possible because King Jesus has arrived. He's the seed of the woman, and he crushed Satan's head through his death and resurrection. So we can join the wise men and rejoice greatly with great joy. We can be super stoked to be part of this kingdom. The king has come. He's reigning now, so let's worship him full throttle. Let's worship him with our voices, singing, making melody in our hearts to, the God, to God. Let's set our souls loose to magnify the Lord. Let's allow our spirits to rejoice in God our Savior. Let's worship him by giving our time, our energy, our devotion, our very lives to his service. May God give us the grace to behold our King and to worship him now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we confess that the glory of your word is so bright that we we just can't take it all in. We really are like two year olds in the fact that our, in the in the sense that our understanding of our salvation is just so dull compared to the reality of how marvelous our salvation actually is. And Lord, we just want to start by acknowledging that King Jesus is far more glorious than we can grasp. And the salvation that he's won for us is far greater than we even recognize. And so, Father, we want to thank you for saving sinners like us who deserved your judgment who didn't do anything to earn any kind of special affection by you. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ just the same, to be our king, to conquer Satan. And Lord, I pray that you give us grace to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace not to be dull towards him, but to glory in him, to exalt, rejoice in him. Father, would you do that work? We need your help. We thank you for this time we've had in your word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.